Welcome to the 21st episode of the No Degree Podcast. This is your host, Janide Iqbal, and today's guest is Suzanne Kelly, a chief talent advisor and strategist. She does unbiased reference checking for high-stakes hires. She is also a consultant and speaker and trains companies on their hiring practices. Suzanne started her career in an office. She could not work under her boss and decided it was time to go out on her own. She got into recruiting and the rest is history. Learn how Suzanne used her emotional intelligence to navigate her business and win over clients, all while delivering as much value as possible. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show isn't possible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, my mentor, Suzanne Kelly. Suzanne, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you today, Janayat, and thank you for having me. I have a company that does something unique, something especially today when you think about this whole situation with uh, COVID-19 and how important it is to have the right leader in place that can manage through a crisis. And what I do is unbiased referencing at the C-suite level. So for companies that are looking to bring on CEOs, CFOs, anybody in the C-suite, I have my own proprietary method for unbiased referencing. It's investigative, it's forensic, and it establishes whether or not a candidate is exactly who they say they are during the interview. So you're the type of person that the CEOs, CTOs, chief of staff, the really high level position, those are the people that you sort of vet? Yes. Okay. So you make sure that the right people are in place. I think what makes me so valuable is that I don't know the candidates. So I'm the only one in the hiring process who's truly unbiased. I'm not recruiting them. My background was recruiting for about 20 years. I understand hiring inside and out. And I understand leadership and I understand business. So I kind of think of myself as the extension of my client's team where they'll select their top tier candidates. But what they can't establish is what the soft skills are because those are really hard. Like what is someone's work ethic? What type of emotional intelligence do they have? What is their integrity? All the things that really are impossible to assess unless you've worked really closely with someone in the past or unless you've lived with them. It's really hard to know what lies beneath. The thing that gets me up out of bed every day, my why, is this one question. How can we trust a candidate is who they say they are? That is my purpose in life, is to help companies land the best possible leaders. Wow, you do an amazing job at it. So how'd you sort of get into this? What did you want to be in high school? Okay, so first of all, I was a very average student. I didn't love school. I was really average. When I graduated high school, my father, who's extremely intelligent, very high IQ, not a lot of EQ, but a lot of IQ. His IQ compensates for his EQ, that's for sure. My EQ probably compensates for my IQ. <laughs> but, but he told me that I was not college material. 
He just said that this isn't an option for you. You're not college material. What did he think you could do? I told him that I wanted to travel the world. And I was 17 years old when I graduated high school. I want to travel the world. And I think the best way for me to do that is to become a flight attendant. So he said, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's what you can do. But first, I think you need to get some business skills so that you can go to work. If this doesn't work out, if your plan doesn't work out, then you can fall back on going to work for a corporation as an administrative assistant or something like that. His sights weren't set very high for me. (laughs) Did you become the flight attendant? As soon as I graduated high school, I contacted all the airlines and I got applications for flight attendant and employment applications. What happened while I was in this business school that he sent me to, you know, this was a year program. And he said, I had to do this. By the way, my father was the type of person, you really had to listen to him. He was a little bit controlling. So it was really like, it was going to be his way or the highway. So I agreed that I would do this and I would go to this school for a year before I sent in the applications. Right before I was ready to graduate from the school, I sent in all the applications because I knew that's that was what I had my heart set on. But what happened while I was in school is my I met my future husband and I ended up not pursuing my dream to become a flight attendant and travel the world. And I ended up getting married at a very young age. Then where did that take you? Which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> so where? So what career did you end up in? I ended up going to work for a commodities trading firm. I worked in many capacities. I worked for the firm for a few years. I worked at the precious metals on the precious metals desk. I worked in traffic initially and logistics. I then I went to work for like the second in command because I really did have great skills from this school that my father sent me to. I ended up working for the second in command. I was his administrative assistant and he was so incredibly abusive. He was just a real narcissist. I learned a lot during that period of time, but I also learned a lot about what I didn't want in life. And Janiyah, this guy was so bad. He was really like a malignant narcissist all about power and ego and control. And I know that he saw me as an object. He really felt that he owned me. He'd want me like, you know, right next to him all day long. I had a boatload of work to do, but if he saw me doing it, it was the type of, it was crazy. It was almost like he wanted me to do it, but he didn't want to lose my attention. It was like he had me like by next to him at his disposal all day And then I'd end up working all night to try to get my work done. It was just a really crazy situation. So I had finally had it up to my eyeballs and I decided that I was going to quit. He did something one day that like really ticked me off. I went to Human Resources and I told them that I can't work for him anymore. And they said, well, we're wondering, we're all wondering what took you so long. (laughs) So I left. And I said, okay, I'm going to start my own company because I don't want to go to work for anyone ever again after this. So I temped for six months. And during that period, I put everything I needed together to start my own employment agency. That's what I did. And that led me into a career of just about 20 years 
of recruiting. And by the way, my very first client was that commodities trading firm that I left. Within the first week in business, I made $4,000. And he got wind, the guy that I worked for got wind that they were working with me. And he went to the CFO and he told the CFO that he didn't want that company working with my company. And the CFO told him, um, just so you know, she left you, not us. So they continued to work with me. That just shows how important it is just to, like people can see people who bring good value. So let's go back to the business school. What type of business school was it? Because it seems like it was actually a decent program. It was like a, a one-year intensive program that taught me typing and grammar and English and letter writing and all different kinds of things that would allow me to be a phenomenal administrative assistant. What were the skills that really helped you launch your own company? Because launching your own company isn't easy, especially as early as you did and being as successful. How did you sort of go about it? Okay, so let me go back to my childhood. I grew up with three brothers. I call myself the unspoiled daughter. They were relentless. I mean, absolutely relentless. They would torture me. They would tease me. My childhood was kind of like my boot camp for life. And my father was really like emotionally disconnected. But what he really did for me is through his actions, he demonstrated, because he had a, a really senior level position. So the things I learned from my father were his work ethic, his integrity. He was really disciplined. He was a corporate guy. And I don't really ever think of myself as a a real corporate person. I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think it was just in my blood because when I left that company, it was a decision that I made. I left the company and then I decided right then and there that I was going to start my own company. And I always felt like I wanted to do something on my own. I wanted to be the founder of something. And that was kind of like the catalyst. I think that Working for that malignant narcissist was one of the best things that I ever could have ever done because it led me on that path. Why recruiting? Like out of all the businesses you could do, what attracted you to recruiting? I always felt that I was good with people. I always felt that I had the personality to talk to people and to elicit information from them. After I researched it, I saw that it was lucrative. I thought, I want more. I don't want to have a glass ceiling on what I'm able to make. And I really do believe in working smart. So I thought that that would be a good business to pursue. And, and it, it worked out for me. Now you started the recruiting. How'd that go the first year? Obviously, the first week was good, right? You picked up and you got your former company that you worked at. How'd it go? Because I, I assume there's always ups and downs. Oh, yeah. There are always ups and downs. But what I was able to achieve during throughout that career was longevity amongst the companies that I worked with. And that's something that I'm really proud of. And what I learned, and I think back then, when I would interview candidates, I had an office. I would have them come into my office. I think a lot like you, I think this is why I ad admire your style, because I feel like you're an old soul. But what I would do is I would always, I always had a willingness to talk to people. It didn't matter who it was. I would always talk to them. I would always make it about them, always. And I wasn't thinking about it. And when you do that, 
that's when the magic happens because that's what gives you the ability to learn a lot about someone and what they really want and what's really best for them. I would always lead with this. I just want you to know that I'm going to help you as best I can. But at the end of the day, this is your life. You're the one that has to live it. And you're the one that has to be happy. So my objective is to get to know you as best I can so that I can do everything in my power to help you find a job that's fulfilling for you. Wow. That's, would you say, was that common in the recruiting industry or was that just something the way you did it and it just, it was something that set you apart from your competition? Janayad, I honestly don't know if that was common in the recruiting industry. Probably not, but I didn't care because I didn't care like what anybody else was doing. I kind of had blinders on and I was just focused on what I was doing and all I wanted was to just be the best that I could possibly be. And I would also take that approach and replicate it with my clients or, or vice versa. It was the same thing. And I think when a really good recruiter has the ability to walk that line, that tightrope between the candidates and the clients and to represent each of them just the same. The companies were the ones paying my fees, but the candidates had to be equally as happy. If I would work with an executive and they would tell me that, listen, I want you to go out there and recruit me an A player, I would always ask them, and what's in it for them? Because I can go out there and I can source you and handpick the best possible candidates, but you got to give me good reason to make them want to come and meet with me and interview with you. And what's the response when they hear that? Because I assume they don't always hear that, right? You get a lot of people saying, yes, yes, yes. Uh, humana, humana, humana. Mm, let me think about it. No, I mean, I think what, what made me, what, what really gave me an ad- leverage is that I worked with some amazing companies. And so I wouldn't work with anyone unless I felt that they had something of great significance to deliver to the candidates that I was representing. What were some companies that you worked with? Bridgewater. And when did you work with them? Because they're one now they're so big, right? You when did you start working with Bridgewater? It was like two thousand. Wow. So how many employees were there? Thirty-five. Wow. And now it's thousands, right? Now anybody in the financial sector knows them. So how was it to sort of work with the company in it? And did you expect to see it get to where it is today? I mean, I met Ray Dalio and I asked him. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why would somebody want to come work here? What was his answer? Nobody knew. Like, I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever of what was in store. But I'll tell you, the first person that I placed there, I recruited her to work for Bridgewater. She went in for the interview. And by the way, she's still there. She went in for the interview and she really loved it. And I believed with all my heart and soul and intellect that this was a much better opportunity than where she was at that time. And it all really made perfect sense. And if I believe in something and if I believe in someone, I'll go to the ends of the earth to fight for it. She went on the interview, maybe it was a couple of interviews, and I was working with the COO. We made her the offer. And then she told her husband. And her husband didn't think that it really was enough. Like it really made sense for her to make a move at that time. 
he did his own analysis of it. And he felt that it was kind of like 50-50. And I knew that he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. I knew it. I just knew it. I felt it in my heart and I felt it in my soul. And when she told me that she wasn't going to take the job because he didn't really feel, he wasn't like on board with her and he didn't really feel that it was the right move for her at that time. She was fighting back tears. She was choking back. And at that point, that was when the, the switch flipped for me. And I said, do you mind if I speak to him? I'll never forget where I was sitting at the time. It was a Friday night and I had just come in from dinner with a client. I picked up a message from her on my voicemail. I called her back. It was probably at this point, eight o'clock at night when she said that to me and I knew how upset she was and I knew how right the opportunity really was for her, how much I believed in it. That's when I asked her if I could talk to her husband. (laughs) So I knew would always get to know my candidates really well. And so I knew that he loved to cook and I love to cook. When he got on the phone, I said, your wife mentions that you love to cook. You're a really good cook. And she tells me about these dishes, this dish you make and that dish you make. Well, that like immediately broke the ice. So we had a conversation about food for probably about 30 minutes. And then once the ice was fully broken, then I started to tell him all the reasons why I felt that this was a really great opportunity for her and why I really believed in it. And by the time we were done chatting, he said, it's her decision. She can take the job if she wants it. And she got on the phone and she was like, thank you. She was so happy. And she took the job. and. 20 years later, she's still there. That's crazy. So you you really know so much about your candidates, right? Because I know I talk to other people and recruiters and it's like they don't even know like the last job, right? They don't even know most of the things. What was it about you that wanted you to learn more and how did it help you? In this instance, it helped you with that. How else did it help you? And by the way, let me just tell you that every Easter, every year at Greek Easter, I sit at their table for dinner. They always invite me and their kids call me Aunt Sue. She had no kids at the time. So yes, you know, I think it's really important to, I mean, not, not all recruiters need to sit at the dinner table of their candidates, but I think that it's really important to get to know people so that at the end of the day, you're doing what's best for them, not you. Indirectly, you're ending up doing what's best for the company because you know whether or not they're a good fit. Oh, for sure. And I also know whether the company is a good fit for them. What are some other industries that you sort of recruited for? I had a really nice circle of industries. I worked at one point, I did a lot of work in the reinsurance sector. I did work in publishing, financial services organizations. I did work in the travel industry for a really upscale travel company that I did a lot of work with. So I felt that What I had to, and market research was a really big one for me, custom and quantitative and syndicated. What I felt was that I had a lot to offer candidates that I would meet with all these different industries that I worked in, all these different sectors. And I ultimately became a generalist because if you're recruiting for a company and they want you to fill a role and they're thrilled with the job that you've done, 
And then they come back to you to fill another one. I just didn't have, because my clients were all like small to medium-sized companies, not all of them, but many of them were small to medium-sized companies like Bridgewater that were growing exponentially. I just didn't have the heart to say, sorry, you got to call somebody else. And then you just got better at it. Oh, yeah. So I just kept getting better and better. And then the projects became more and more challenging. So I said, you know, it was like, I would make the analogy that, you know, I was no longer looking for a needle in, in a haystack. I was looking for a needle in the Himalayas because the jobs were like so specific that I would have to really, which I did a lot of anyway, but go out and map these candidates out and then try to handpick them. And that meant stealing them away from the companies where they were currently employed, none of which were my clients. I would never do that. No, of course not. Did you ever get pushback on your process? Because you do things a lot differently than other recruiters. Do you ever get pushback from the companies? Or since you delivered, it was a non-issue? You mean pushback because why? No, just like, hey, you know, you believed in the candidate and they're like, no, they don't fit our profile. They don't fit this checklist. They don't have this experience or something, stuff like that. My candidates and I had wonderful relationship and, you know, many of them, I also did a lot of work in trading. I know that I was the recruiter of choice and most of them would give me the projects based on exclusivity. So they wanted me to fill the jobs and they knew that I was going to come through for them. But there was one company that I worked with where they brought in, it was a family owned business. They had been around for over 80 years and they reached a point where they needed to bring in a new head of HR. And I was working with pretty much every business leader in the organization until she came on board. When she came on board, she started, most of the employees were there for decades and the company treated them so well. It was just a a happy, wonderful place to put people. This head of HR came on board and started ousting people that had been there for 10, 20 years. The best way that I could describe her is that she just looked down at people. She was making these unilateral decisions that this person was no longer appropriate for the company. And these were employees that were loved. And she was just cleaning house unnecessarily. And it was wreaking havoc throughout the company. And I remember that there was this one job that they asked me to fill. It was a a senior position. Because I had already had the relationship with the company, she didn't bring me in. But she was involved in the hire. I presented this one gentleman, and I thought he was just absolutely phenomenal. She interviewed him, and the leadership team interviewed him. And Everybody loved him except her. And so she said, because she didn't feel that he was the right fit, that they weren't going to be moving forward with him. So I asked her why. And she said, because it's just an instinct. I just don't feel that he's flexible. So this is kind of when my whole method of reference checking was born. This is kind of when it all started. And, um, I just couldn't believe it. And I rolled up my sleeves and I went out there and I must have called at least eight different people that he worked with at every level in the past. And I collaborated with him on it. And I told him who I wanted to call and asked him if that was okay. And, you know, we, we discussed it. And what I learned after this 
incredibly in-depth process was that he was anything but inflexible. All the feedback was typed up verbatim, the, the telephone numbers, the email addresses, all the contact information was there. It was a full transcript. And so I brought it to her and I presented it to her and I told her, you know, I think that you really might want to read this before you completely dismiss him as a candidate. And she did. And I watched her as she sat there and read all of these insights that I had elicited from various professionals that he had worked with at every level. After she finished reading it, she looked me right in the eye and she asked me if I made it up. And I said, well, listen, you know, the numbers, all the contact information is there. They're all expecting your call. I I already gave them the heads up that you might be contacting them. So feel free and have the conversation yourself. And they hired him. And now today he is part of their leadership team. And that's about 18 years later. Your process really ends up giving them a lot of value that they don't get people who stick around just one, two years, right? They get people who truly grow within the company. I could name at least 20 people off the top of my head that are still in the same companies and thriving like 20 years later. But it doesn't happen by accident, Janiyat. It happens by being the kind of person you are, by really investing in someone. And I'm not just talking about your time. I'm talking about your energy. It's very clear that you really take this seriously, right? It's a totally different level that when they work with you, right, they get something totally different. And it's it's kind of interesting how this lady was the result. That's when your process was born. So now you started doing the reference checking. How did it sort of evolve over time? Because you produced this report. What happened next? Well, let me just say this. Good candidates are screened out just as much as bad candidates or wrong candidates. Not all candidates are bad. Some of them are the wrong fit. Some of them are bad. Some of them are toxic, but some are just the wrong fit. Good ones are screened out just as much as the wrong ones are screened in. What I believe right through my core is that it's really impossible to know whether someone that you've just met and put through an interview process is who they say they are or who you think they are or who you need them to be. The diligence that goes into doing a really quality reference checking process, and I mean unbiased, not references that have been curated by the candidates, it slips through the cracks. And the number one reason for hiring mistakes is because companies can't assess the soft skills during the interview. What are common mistakes that recruiters make? How much time do we have? We have time. Okay. In my opinion, the common mistakes that recruiters make, not all, but many, is that they make it all about themselves and about the fee. I mean, I want you to follow in my footsteps because I'm no longer recruiting. And you really have what it takes to make such a tremendous impact on companies. And they need people like you to be out there developing their talent selection pools. They really do. And no, thank you. Where do you think recruiting has gone wrong? Like, why is it? Because you have the clear success stories. I think some of it comes from the companies too, right? That they're kind of, or do you feel it's from more the recruiter side? Look, you know, recruiters don't discriminate. They're internal and external. Oftentimes, internal recruiters are bogged down with a lot of wrecks on their desk. I think where it all begins, Janayad, is... Has the recruiter really earned the right to be there? 
What qualifies them for this role and for being in this role? Do they really thoroughly understand hiring and what the process looks like? How collaborative is it? From the corporate side, if a leader, if a business leader doesn't value talent as their greatest asset and they're not rewarding whoever the individuals are in the organization that are leading talent, if they're not rewarding them accordingly, and if they don't value them as their greatest asset, then they're probably going to end up selecting the best of the worst candidates. And let's face it, every company is as good as their people. Everything you said is spot on, and I hope companies and business owners really take it to heart. So when did you sort of transition away from recruiting, and why was that? And why did you go more towards the reference checking? I felt that it was time for me to do something else. And I really came to believe that the reference checking process is so incredibly broken. And if you look at the odds of out there today, and it hasn't changed, of hiring right and what it looks like, I mean, the accuracy is about that of a coin toss. And then you look at the state of employee engagement in the American workforce, and roughly seven out of 10 employees are not engaged in their work. I think it really, all the dots, if all the dots are not connected between leadership and management and hiring and interviewing and reference checking and all of that, then there's going to be a breakdown. Here's what I believe. Look, most people are not pros. They're not hiring ninjas, but they need to be, or they need to at least know how to best align themselves with someone who is. And if you don't know what that looks like as a business leader, then how do you know how to select the right recruiter? That's the thing. Like All the dots need to be connected. And I think business leaders need to wake up and say, okay, why isn't my company more successful? And when you think about the opportunity losses of not having the right people in place, because if you had the right people, you might be able to grow your company from, let's say, a $500,000 company to a $2 million company in three years, or to a $10 million company in three years, or 20 or whatever it might be. But with the wrong team, you're going to pretty much stay in neutral or your company might be decimated. So we are who we hire and hiring mistakes don't discriminate. But I think it begins with a, a basic foundation of what hiring is supposed to look like and how you can best leverage through the process, the people, and getting that right. And I think as far as recruiters are concerned, there are many out there who have simply not earned the right to be there, who don't make it about the candidates, who it's supposed to be about, and don't give them the time of day, and are looking to just make a fee. And then there are a lot of companies out there that are so desperate to get a seat filled that they settle on the best of the worst. So I think it's really important that companies know how to assess recruiters. And I think also candidates need to be equally as selective as to which recruiters they choose to work with. So in general, you would say that if a recruiter is good, right, you feel like they're looking out for you, you're probably going to get a better experience and end up at a better position that's right for you. If that's the case, then that recruiter is like gold. One of my friends said that a position he got recruited into, he had a good recruiter and the recruiter says, 
never base your career off a recruiter. And he said that recruiter actually had his best interest in mind. So it's kind of funny. So what was now, you know, you obviously made a lot of good decisions. What were some things that you would have you sort of made mistakes in business? Like what were some things you would have done differently or big learning points? I want to say one thing. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I would pick up the phone and call maybe the COO of Bridgewater, or I would call the president of a trading firm that I worked with, or whoever it might be, HR. And I would pick up the phone and call that person. And I had good relationships. What I had with my clients was trust. They trusted me. And I would say, I have a candidate that I want you to meet. I could see them fitting into actually one of three areas. I'm not sure which they might be the best fit at, but they could fit into either one of those these areas. And I want you to meet them. But I'm not going to send you their resume. Because if I send you their resume, you're going to think that I'm crazy, but you must meet them. And they would always meet them because they trusted me. And after they would meet them, I would say 9.5 times out of 10, that person would get a job that was like so far off. If you looked at their resume and you looked at where they landed, didn't make sense. It just didn't make sense. But that's why I'm telling you it's so important to get to know the person. I think in any business, right? Getting to know the people just completely changes the dynamics and completely puts you at a separate level. So what were the sort of the mistakes you've made or what are some big lessons that you've learned throughout your business career? The biggest lessons that I've learned, and when I tell you that hiring mistakes don't discriminate, I'm telling you that hiring mistakes don't discriminate. They happen to the best of us and they happen to even the most skilled interviewers. And I would say that the biggest mistakes in my life have been hiring, around hiring, whether it's hiring the wrong web developer or hiring the wrong contractor or entering into a personal relationship or a business relationship with someone. These types of things happen at every single level of our lives. And I think that the same principles that apply to business, hiring in business, should apply to every single area of our lives. And when I talk about reference checking and I talk about hiring, it doesn't limit itself to just companies. When you think about candidates, right, they need to be equally as diligent and equally as savvy when it comes to vetting companies. I would say that the biggest mistakes that I've made throughout my life were entering into the wrong relation, you know, you get better and better and better at it, of course, hopefully you do. But I would say that those would probably have to be the biggest mistakes I've made. And I've made plenty. So did the lack of a college degree ever sort of hold you back when getting clients? Or what was the situation regarding that? (laughs) It's never held me back. When people ask me where I went to college, I say that I have a PhD from the University of Hard Knocks. No, I have a doctorate. I have so much life experience and I've learned my most valuable lessons by making mistakes, falling down, being resilient, getting back up, and most importantly, failing forward. What did your father end up saying? My father is just so emotionally detached that he's never really said anything. Recently, he called me. He started asking me about my business. He said that I'm really glad to see that you're making 
such great progress. I think that's what he said. That was really it throughout my life. He's just not that kind of a guy. But what I'm really grateful for is that I got his work ethic. I got his integrity. I don't know what else I got from him, but those are really big things. And I'm really proud of my work ethic and, and I guess what I've achieved. So what advice would you have for someone looking to get into recruiting to date? Because oftentimes I see a lot of recruiting positions. They say must have college degree. How would someone sort of counter that? How would someone break into the industry to sort of get that experience? I would tell you that I have worked with some really top executives and I've been dealing with business leaders throughout my whole career. Not one of them has ever asked me if I had a college degree, ever. They come to me for advice. They come to me as a a subject matter expert in the area of all things hiring. It's never come up. I've gotten where I am because I've taken risks. And I would say for anybody that is interested in becoming a recruiter, I would, I would do my research. I would do some soul searching and find out exactly why you want to become a recruiter. What's the driving force behind that? If it's about money, I would say maybe rethink that because I believe that we should do things in our lives for the right reasons and do things not for money, but because they give us fulfillment and they make us happy. And I know that what you do, I know you love what you do. It's written all over your face. And I've known you now for a year and a half. And I know that you not only love what you do, but you're damn good at it. You are the poster child for what it would take to be the traits of a good recruiter because you care about people. You have empathy. You're an incredible listener and you make it about other, you're selfless. And these are the things, and you have a willingness to do, here's another big thing. You have a willingness to do whatever it takes, no matter what that is. And I think back on my days of recruiting, when I would identify some top candidates for a certain project that I was working on, and maybe they were working an hour away, or they lived an hour away. The way I did it was you meet people face-to-face, and that's how I mean, today you can certainly make a connection with people over the phone. It's just not the same as connecting with someone in 3D. I would go out of my way to meet people on a Sunday or a Saturday night or at six o'clock in the morning or whatever it was that worked for them. If I believed that they had the potential and it was something that was right for them and my client could gain from it, I had that willingness to do that. And I think that that's what's lacking in large part, with a lot of recruiters today. How has the industry changed since you got, right? Because of obviously technology has changed a lot of things. How has it changed? And you know what's gotten better and what's sort of gotten really different? Technology is a beautiful thing and AI is a beautiful thing. But what I've seen in terms of the biggest changes in recruiting is that it's become a lot more personal. Recruiting should be a human interaction not a transaction. I think that what happens is, I don't think I know that extraordinary candidates. Remember I talked to you about how I would pick up the phone and call the COO of Bridgewater or another executive or an HR contact that I had. And I would tell them that I had a candidate that I wanted them to meet, but I refused 
to send the resume. I would let them bring it in with them when they arrived and they would agree to meet them. Well, I think that's almost unheard of today. And I think it's a tragedy because there are so many extraordinary, extraordinary candidates and people out there that have so much to contribute and that the skills that they've developed over through their careers can absolutely be transferable into other areas. But if they don't have someone fighting for them and advocating for them, and they're being screened out based on keyword searches, what an injustice. I see it all the time because, you know, I do resumes for people. And before I do a resume and after I do the resume, they're the same person, right? Nothing has changed except a few hours. Now, all of a sudden, they get more interviews. So it's kind of interesting that do people not deserve to be found if they don't necessarily have the top-notch resume? And I've worked with people who you could tell that they're the ones who would have the typos on their resume, but they're good workers, right? And they're good at certain roles. And I know they would get passed up based on their resume. First of all, nobody should have typos on their resumes. I'm sorry, they shouldn't. It's just not professional. And anybody could reach out to anybody that has a good command of grammar and English and can have them resumes that have typos. It's careless. But I think that people do not deserve, nobody deserves to be passed up for a job. I mean, look, you asked me if somebody deserves to be passed up for a job based on their resume. I think the answer is it all depends. So if the resume is not appealing and it's too busy, resume screeners or individuals that are reading resumes, and if they're looking at them in abundance, they're going to be looking at them pretty quickly. It's important for the resume to stand out. And I know that you do a great job. When I saw the couple of resumes that you did, and believe me, I'm not blowing smoke your way. I was blown away. I think it's really so professional and impeccable, but also really easy for the eye, really easy to read. And, you know, they capture your attention and they're very clear. It's important for people to do everything in their power to try to stand out among all the noise, especially today. The investment of time and energy that we put into things on the front end almost always pays off on the back end. We get into things, we get out of things, what we put into them. No, I think you're absolutely correct. You want to put an effort and you want to invest into your career. So let's slowly start to wrap things up. What are sort of the next steps for you? Because you're doing a lot of these unbiased reference checks. Like what's sort of the goal for you? I do them for companies and it's very comprehensive. Each project takes between seven to 10 days to complete. It's done before the hiring decisions have been made. Otherwise, if someone is psychologically involved, invested in a candidate, it's almost too late. I would say that, you know, I really enjoy that work. But what I enjoy most, I have a team now. It's a small team, but I'm, I'm continuing to build a team. But what I enjoy most is training and really imparting the insights that I've gained throughout my career in the area of hiring and reference checking to companies out there who can really turn their companies around by implementing best practices in hiring and best practices in reference checking. And I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill, average, check-the-box 
broken component of reference checking. I'm talking about, it doesn't have to be the magnitude of reference checking that I do at the CEO and the C-suite level, but companies can do a much better job of what they currently doing, most of them, by creating a hybrid between what I do and what they do. For me, it's really getting more involved in the training. And I would tell you that if a hiring process is fundamentally broken, again, the reference checking doesn't really matter because most likely companies are selecting the best of the worst candidates. So they have to get their a good hiring dashboard in place. And then the referencing goes hand in hand with that. I definitely see you doing that. And I definitely see you impacting many companies and getting the right people in and changing the way companies think. Because I think now more than ever, it's needed, right? Especially during this time where you kind of see where the true leaders, they stand, they rise up and then bad leaders are exposed, right? You see these companies and the leaders who are really looking out, who are slashing their own salaries to keep their company afloat versus other leaders who are just not taking care of people. The good hires and the good leaders really set the standard. Oh my God. And you know what? I would say that what I see among the diligence that I do, and I do it very regularly, is that the extraordinary, fully engaged, superstar, A-player leaders, they all have the same qualities. All have the same qualities. They, they care about their people. They put people first. They can have a thousand employees. And these leaders that I'm referring to, they know almost all of them by first name. They know their families. They have empathy. They have faith. They are the leaders. They do a lot of um, philanthropy and they give a lot and they're selfless and they're amazing. Anyone that's fortunate enough to work for people like this, it can really be life altering. Thank you so much for your time. I know the audience will get a lot of value and thank you so much for the impact you've had on my life. I've grown so much in the past year and a half and I still have a lot of growing and thank you for always pushing me and striving, you know, helping me do my best. Well, you're doing an amazing job. And I can tell you, you're impacting more lives than I could ever imagine just in the work that you're doing. And by the way, the work that you're doing by helping people with their resumes is a wonderful precursor to recruiting. And I'll tell you why. When you do your intakes, it's like you're interviewing them for a job right? You're, you're investing your time and your energy to get to know them. And there probably isn't any question that you can't answer about any of the candidates that you're helping do their resume. So can you imagine if you started picking up the phone and making contacts with companies out there and telling them about these candidates that you've met and they start asking you questions, you're like a pro. You already know everything there is to know about them. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the next step. And thank you so much for helping with yeah, that step. You're welcome. So I know. Thank you for having me. Always, always. And we look forward to many more interactions together. So thank you, Suzanne. We'll have all your information in the show. How would someone get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about you? My website is Suzanne Kelly, dot com. My phone number is 212-715-3949. And if anyone has questions, uh, they can uh, reach out to me or they can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. I'll have all those in the show notes. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. 
Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. So, you got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve we them. We got this. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in a knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.